Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In this episode, we're going to try something a little different. If you tuned in last time, you'll know that not only are we going to cover the cardiac surgeon Christian Bernard, but review a book written about him and even have a discussion with the author. So let's get to it in this episode of Legends of Surgery. I thought we'd begin with a little primer on Christian Bernard. I'll give a bit of the highlights of his life, laying out a framework upon which we'll add some meat through our discussion with the author of the book, Christian Bernard, The Surgeon Who Dared. This framework comes primarily from that book, which was written by a former colleague of Dr. Bernard's and a cardiac transplant surgeon himself, Dr. David K.C. Cooper. After we cover Bernard's bio, I'll give you a bit of an introduction to the author before launching into the interview. Christian Needling Bernard was born on November 8, 1922, in the small country town of Beaufort West, South Africa, which was part of an arid scrub grassland known as the Great Karoo. His parents were Afrikaners, descendants of the Dutch settlers dating back to the 17th and 18th centuries. In fact, the Dutch predated the English in settling in South Africa, with the Dutch East India Company setting up a supply base at the Cape of Good Hope, which would eventually become Cape Town. This base was started in 1652 and was led by a former assistant surgeon of the company named Jan van Rijbeek. Christian's first language was Afrikaans, a language derived from Dutch, which is actually the official language of South Africa. In fact, English was his second language, and he only really began to speak it regularly in university. Christian's parents ran the local Dutch Reformed Church, his father the minister and his mother playing the organ. His upbringing was very religious and quite poor and humble, which may explain Bernard's later love of the limelight, as we'll see. A fun fact, limelight refers to the brilliant white light created by adding lime, a calcium-containing inorganic mineral, not the fruit, to a flame fed by oxygen and hydrogen cylinders. It was first used in theaters in 1837 and would be aimed at the front center stage to illuminate the actors. Okay, so in 1941, Christian started medical school at the University of Cape Town, working at the Groot Schur Hospital, which is Afrikaans for Big Barn. The hospital was built on the site of Groot Schur, an estate originally owned by the Dutch East India Company, which held a granary, hence the Big Barn, I guess. The estate was later owned by Cecil Rhodes, a British diamond mining magnate, who also served as the Cape Colony Prime Minister in the 1890s. In the former African country of Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe and Zambia, Rhodes University in South Africa, and the Rhodes Scholarship are all named for him. After graduating medical school in 1946, Bernard first set up as a general practitioner in a small fruit-growing town called Ceres, replacing a doctor who was on sabbatical. At that time, he was trying to get some money saved up for his marriage and was intending on training later in OBGYN. Now, luckily for the world, the town doc returned and Bernard had to leave. The first post he could get was at the City Hospital for Infectious Diseases in Cape Town, where he did research on children suffering from hydrocephalus, which is an accumulation of fluid around the brain, due to tuberculosis infections. The next stop was a junior position as a registrar, kind of like a resident, uh, in the Department of Medicine at Grootshire Hospital. By 1953, Bernard was able to transfer to the Department of Surgery, where he worked as a resident and did research on dogs, studying a birth defect called intestinal atresia, which is basically a malformation of the intestines, leading to bowel obstruction. Bernard would eventually get a PhD for this work. In a move that would dictate his life's work, Bernard went to continue his training at the University of Minnesota, in June of 1956. At the time, this was the center of the nascent cardiac surgery universe, and some of the biggest names in cardiac surgery were working and training there, 
Bernard worked under Owen Wangenstein and initially focused on continuing his intestinal atresia research, but soon needled his way onto the clinical service. Apparently, it was a chance encounter in the research lab with someone working on the heart-lung machine, prompting his interest in cardiac surgery. And Bernard had arrived at just the right time, as Walt Lillehei, considered one of the pioneers of cardiac surgery, had just performed the first open-heart surgery the year before at the age of just 35. Now, while in Minnesota, Bernard spent three months running the heart-lung machine, as well as operating, doing research, and even finding time to design a replacement mechanical valve. All told, he spent two and a half years there. To make ends meet, he would work part-time jobs like washing cars, cutting grass, and even nursing. Those that worked with him at this time describe Bernard as intense, serious, and able to work hard, a person with real drive. During his time there, Bernard developed the early symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis, which put fear into him for his future in surgery. It was an illness that would plague him for the rest of his life, but as we'll see, it didn't limit his abilities to operate to a significant degree. Let's take a quick detour to explore the word rheumatoid. I always found this challenging as there is rheumatology, rheumatic fever, and rheumatism, as well as the description of roomy eyes. So let's take a second to clear this up. Now the root word here is rheuma, which is Greek for a discharge from the body. So roomy eyes means having red and runny eyes, pretty simple. Now rheumatism means any disease marked by inflammation and pain in the joints, muscles, or fibrous tissue, which is admittedly pretty vague, and covers at least 200 different conditions, hence the specialty field of rheumatology. So what does that have to do with discharge? Well, the term rheumatism dates back to the 17th century, as it was believed that chronic joint pain was caused by excessive flow of a room, which means bodily fluids, into a joint. So the connection is to the old four humors theory of Hippocrates and Galen, as in an excess of one of the four humors or fluids in the joints. Other fun connections to these old theories are the words melancholy and sanguine. We use melancholy to mean sad and pensive, but it literally translates to black bile, one of the humors, an excess of which was thought to cause depression. And sanguine means to be optimistic or positive, which is thought to be associated with excess blood, one of the four humors. And of course, the Latin root word means blood. Okay, so next is rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease. Now this connects to inflamed joints, which is one of the symptoms of rheumatic fever, a bacterial infection caused by streptococcus. One of the complications can be scarring and damage to heart valves, hence rheumatic heart disease. Finally, rheumatoid arthritis, as a name, was coined in 1859 by British rheumatologist Alfred Baring Garrod. Remember that the suffix oid means resembling, so rheumatoid arthritis was thought to present similarly to rheumatic fever. Now you know. Back to Bernard. Upon returning to South Africa in mid-1958, he quickly set up the first successful open cardiac surgery program in Africa, with some help from Wangenstein, who arranged for the NIH, or the National Institutes of Health, to provide him with a heart-lung machine and money to support his research back home. As Bernard was the only cardiac surgeon in Africa, he had only himself to rely on and had to train his own technician to operate the heart-lung machine. He would practice new techniques in an animal laboratory before attempting them on patients, essentially training himself. Despite these restrictions, Bernard did his first open-heart operation in Cape Town on July 28, 1958, just weeks after returning from Minnesota. He also set up a program for treating congenital heart disease at the nearby Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital. While described as not technically gifted and liable to lose his cool under stress, needing absolute silence in the OR, 
Bernard, through sheer force of will, created these successful programs. He was famous for the personal attention he gave his patients, constantly checking on their progress at all hours and spending hours at their bedside. And that fame grew quickly, garnering international recognition for his success, particularly in the children's program. In those early Halcyon days, he also developed a new mechanical heart valve prosthesis, known alternately as the UCT valve for the University of Cape Town, or the Bernard Goosen valve, and designed a new operation for Epstein's anomaly, a birth defect of the heart. Soon, Bernard was traveling frequently to other heart centers around the world. By the early 1960s, after a thousand open-heart operations, Bernard began to consider attempting a heart transplant. Now, while the experimental work had been done by others, and there had already been successful kidney transplants at this point, none of the other cardiac surgery centers had tried it yet. From a technical standpoint, it was not that complicated. The key issue was dealing with the body's immune system rejecting the new heart. But with his arthritis in his hands worsening, Bernard felt some urgency to do something valuable to push cardiac surgery further. Let's take a minute to get into those experimental works that allowed Bernard to proceed. Norman Shumway, who worked at Stanford University, was one of the leading lights in cardiac surgery. His group perfected the operative technique of heart transplant as well as demonstrating the effectiveness of immunosuppressive drugs to prolong survival in animal models. And we don't think of this today, but no one at the time knew whether a transplanted heart would even work, as all of its nerves had to be severed in the removal process. Shumway put this concern to bed by simply removing hearts and then returning them to the same animal, showing that neural connections were not needed for the heart to function. I thought that was brilliant. While a human heart had not been transplanted into a patient, James Hardy had tried something close to it. Hardy, a cardiac surgeon in Jackson, Mississippi, who performed the world's first lung transplant on June 11th of 1963, actually transplanted a chimpanzee heart into a human patient. On January 24th of 1964, Hardy and his team transplanted the heart of a chimpanzee into 68-year-old deaf-mute Boyd Rush, who was in a coma. The heart beat for one hour and then failed. Rush never regained consciousness. Now, there is some controversy over whether his relatives knew a chimp heart would be used, as Rush came in comatose, as this was not disclosed on the consent form. So let's talk about Bernard's preparation for his attempt. He practiced the technique on dogs, and every Friday would have lunch rounds with the immunologist to learn more about the process. He sent Martha Nisbotha, a pathologist and immunologist at Groot Schur, to Europe to learn tissue typing a new technique which involved matching up tissue types between donor and recipient to reduce rejection. Bernard himself traveled to the U.S. to study kidney transplants with David Hume in Richmond, Virginia, and spent a few weeks in Denver with Tom Starzl, one of the most famous of the 20th century transplant surgeons. Starzl would perform the world's first liver transplant in 1963 and the first successful one in 1967. Now with his team in place and all preparations done, Bernard did his first kidney transplant on October 8th of 1967 as a sort of tune-up for the main event. The recipient for the first human heart would be Louis Washkansky, a 53-year-old diabetic with severe heart failure. The donor was Denise Darval, a 25-year-old woman who had severe brain injury after being hit by a car while crossing a street near the hospital. The operation occurred on the night of December 2nd and 3rd, 1967, technically in the early hours of the 3rd. Of note, the donor's kidneys were also recovered, with one being transplanted into a 10-year-old boy. Bernard, in fact, removed the donor's heart himself at the request of the team to ensure it was done correctly, and then the transplant was done at around 3 a.m. 
Now, despite the late hour, the open amphitheater was filled with doctors watching the historic event. It took three attempts to take the recipient off of the heart-lung machine, but when the transplanted heart began to support the recipient, Bernard shouted in Afrikaans, Jesus, it's going to work. The operation finished at 6.15 a.m. with a total skin-to-skin operating time of five hours. But this was just the beginning. Politicians in South Africa quickly understood the significance and would use this event and Christian Bernard as a shining example of goodness coming from the country to try to counteract the bad publicity it had received from apartheid. A quick side note, apartheid was the South African policy of racial segregation, which lasted from 1948 until the early 1990s. Now, the word itself comes from the Dutch words apart, as in separate, and hide, the equivalent of the English hood, as in neighborhood, so separate neighborhoods. Now, Bernard himself was quickly inundated with phone calls of congratulations from around the world. One caller was the famous American cardiac surgeon Denton Cooley, who said, I heard the news. Congratulations on your first transplant. I'll be reporting on my first hundred soon. Now, one U.S. newspaper offered him $25,000 for the gloves he'd worn during the surgery, but unfortunately he tossed them after operating. In fact, no one had even had the foresight to photograph this historic event. Now, although not expecting it at the time, performing the world's first human heart transplant launched Bernard into the stratosphere of global fame, which would last for the rest of his life, as you'll see. The hospital itself was overwhelmed by journalists and photographers, and within a week, Bernard was on the covers of the magazine's Life, Newsweek, and Time. As for his patient, Mr. Washkansky recovered quickly. The swelling of his body from his failing heart resolved within days, much to everyone's surprise. Unfortunately, within 12 days of the surgery, he took a turn for the worse. X-rays showed something called infiltrates in his lung. At the time, this was thought to be either from rejection of the transplant or infection. And the treatments of these conditions were quite different. And sadly, the team thought it was rejection. By the time it was realized that it was pneumonia, the antibiotics were not effective. And Mr. Washkansky died on December 21, 1967, on just the 18th day after the transplant operation. The autopsy confirmed that there were no signs of rejection of the transplant, but rather showed his death was due to pneumonia. Bernard took the death very hard, but reported the operation in the South African Medical Journal in the December issue of 1967, an impressively fast reporting time. Despite the brief success of the transplant, honors and funding poured forth and inspired other cardiac surgery programs around the world to follow suit. The world's second human heart transplant occurred just three days later in Brooklyn, by surgeon Adrian Kantrowitz in a three-week-old baby. Sadly, the infant lived for just six hours, but this demonstrated that other programs had been ready to be first and that part of Bernard's success was simply good timing and good luck. His second patient was a 58-year-old dental surgeon named Philip Blayberg, who had gone into heart failure following a series of heart attacks. That operation occurred on January 2nd of 1968. Mr. Blayberg lived for 19 months after the surgery at the time a marked success. Fun fact, Mr. Blayberg became the first human in history to actually inspect his own heart and hold it in his own hands. The donor this time was Clive Hopped, a 24-year-old colored man in the terminology of the apartheid regime, who had had a brain hemorrhage or bleed. The issue of transplanting between people of different ethnicities created some controversy in South African society, but those involved didn't seem to be too concerned. As Bernard said, everyone looks the same underneath the skin. One other area of controversy which I thought was interesting was the idea of when death truly occurred. 
and the ethics of removing the heart from a brain-dead person. And because of this, the practice was to remove life support and wait for the heart to stop on its own, creating a delay in recovery which could potentially harm the heart. But this was a serious debate. As there was no legal definition of death at the time, when murder victims became organ donors, the defense attorneys for the accused killers would claim that the surgeons who removed the heart were the actual murderers, not their clients. Anyways, Bernard's fame led to offers to speak worldwide, and he rubbed elbows with the Pope, Prime Ministers, Presidents, and movie stars. This left a heavy burden of work at the Groot Schur Hospital as he was frequently away. In fact, it is estimated that Bernard traveled a quarter million miles in the first year after the first transplant. As the book states, he took to fame like a duck to water. His youthful good looks, natural public speaking ability, and charisma charmed the world. However, he continued, at least for a while, to be active in cardiac surgery when he could. Transplants, after an initial rush, slowed due to poor survival. In fact, only four centers continued to be active. Two in the U.S., one in France, and of course, Bernard's group in South Africa. Between 1967 and 1973, his group did only 11 transplants. It wouldn't be until new anti-rejection drugs were developed that heart transplants would begin to achieve the excellent results we see today. Bernard did have at least one other significant innovation in cardiac surgery that is less well-known. In an operation called a piggyback transplant, a heart would be transplanted into a patient without removing the original heart, serving to boost the function of that native heart. But this had a few benefits in that, if the heart was rejected, it would not be an automatic death sentence as the original heart was still there. And in the case of acute or reversible heart failure, such as a viral infection, the piggyback heart could bridge the gap until the patient recovered and then be removed. And the official name for this is heterotopic heart transplant. And although the invention of ventricular assist devices and total artificial hearts made this operation redundant, it served its purpose for many years. Now, the first such operation occurred on November 25th of 1974. Now, in the late 1970s, Bernard transplanted a baboon heart into a woman and a chimpanzee heart into a man as a piggyback operation, both after heart surgery when they couldn't be weaned off bypass. Due to his worsening rheumatoid arthritis and waning interest in surgery, Bernard retired in 1983 at the age of 61. Now, following this, he made money as a guest lecturer, often on cruise ships, participated in advertisements for companies such as Kellogg's and Ford, and controversially became involved as a research advisor to Clinique La Prairie, a medical retreat and spa in Switzerland. Specifically, he was a part of what was called rejuvenation therapy, which took cell extracts from fetal sheep and injected them into people who wanted to renew their zest for life. Bernard himself received injections for his rheumatoid arthritis. Now, while he tried to do real research looking at the glycophospholipid molecules to determine if there was any effect, and gave talks on this research, the company used his name to advertise a rejuvenation skin cream called Glycel, which the press dubbed Bernard's Cream. The cardiac surgery community felt this was unprofessional, and his reputation took a severe hit for this activity, which Bernard himself would call one of the greatest mistakes of his life. Now, his final professional work was to go to Oklahoma City in 1984 to act as an advisor in the creation of their heart transplant program. Finally, he retired permanently to South Africa, where he'd purchased some sheep farms to create an African sanctuary for threatened species, which stretched over 30,000 acres and had 17 different species. Given the celebrity status he had during his life, we should cover some of his personal life and non-medical works. 
He was married and divorced three times and had six children. He certainly had his share of drama and tragedy over his lifetime, as one of his sons, who was also a physician, died in 1984 of an accidental overdose. Bernard wrote extensively, publishing a number of fictional novels as well as books for the layman on a number of medical topics, not only about the heart but also about rheumatoid arthritis. He even had a weekly column in a South African newspaper for a number of years. While on holiday in Cyprus, Bernard died suddenly of a suspected asthma attack on September 2, 2001, at the age of 78. His ashes were placed at a church in his hometown of Beaufort West with a little monument with the inscription, I came back home. His legacy lives on in a number of ways, including the Chris Bernard Chair of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Grootshire Hospital, the Christian Bernard Foundation, which focuses on children's health, and the Christian Bernard Memorial Hospital, which had been known as the Cape Town City Hospital. In the book, one of Christian Bernard's friends, John Perry, described him in a way that I thought really summed it up well. Quote, Christian Bernard has had his critics in scientific and lay circles. He did not develop the heart-lung machine. He did not develop the technology to transplant the human heart. He never claimed to have done either, nor has he ever claimed to be more than a hard-working human who enjoyed some of the good and desirable things in life. He was, however, a visionary who was able to put it all together and bring about the first successful transplantation of the human heart. End quote. All right, now let's cover the author of the book. David K.C. Cooper was born in London, England, and studied at Guy's Medical School, and then went on to train in cardiothoracic surgery, and was present for the first human heart transplant in the UK in 1968. He worked with Dr. Bernard in Cape Town in the early 1980s at the Groot Schur Hospital. His focus then turned to xenotransplantation, which is the transplanting of animal organs into humans, which is his current area of research at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. In addition to writing the biography on Dr. Bernard, Dr. Cooper also wrote a book entitled Open Heart, The Radical Surgeons Who Revolutionize Medicine. Without further ado, here is our interview. So, hello everyone. I'm, I'm speaking with Dr. David Cooper, uh, the uh, author of the book Christian Bernard, The Surgeon Who Dared, and himself a uh, experienced uh, cardiac surgeon. Um, uh, Dr. Cooper, could you tell us a little bit more about your background? Yes, I was born in London, uh, and I studied medicine at Guy's Hospital Medical School, which is a college of the University of London. It's now been absorbed into King's College London as a sort of a bigger college. Um, and then when I finished training there, I went over to uh, Harvard Medical School for a year to teach anatomy because in England at that time, uh, we had to take a higher exam in the basic sciences in order to get the fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons. And many of us took a year to teach anatomy or physiology or pathology. Anatomy was a common one so that we could have time to study and so on. Um, and then I went back to Cambridge and uh, did an accident job, which was compulsory for a year. And then I took some time off to do a PhD. I, want, I wanted to do cardiac surgery and I took a, a couple of years off to get the basic stuff for a PhD, which was on uh, uh, heart storage, storage of the heart for transplantation. And it was at about that time that Christian Barnard did the first transplant. I, I just started my PhD when he did the first transplant. Interestingly, I'd met him a couple of years before, because just before I went to the US, I was a ship surgeon just for three months just to fill in a time and have a break. 
and uh, the ship went to Cape Town and I went to see him and, and he, he showed me around. I explained that in the book and so on. So I yes. got to know him a little bit then. And uh, so uh, at the end of doing the two years, just just over two years of this PhD, I thought I'd finished most of the work. So I went back and finished my general surgical training. But then at the end of that couple of years, I, I and I did that with Roy Kahn in Cambridge, who was the leading uh, uh, kidney and liver transplant surgeon at the time. And uh, then I realized I hadn't really finished everything. So I took another year off to finish the PhD. And then I moved into cardiac surgery and I was in that about five or so years before I finished my training there and I wanted an academic job and I couldn't get one in Britain I applied for two or three there were very few and I didn't get them uh, so I decided I'd go to work with Chris Barnard for a year's research right. and he offered me a position there but during the year his brother who was his sort of second in command uh, resigned his position partly on political basis because he was very anti-apartheid and so he he retired and resigned and Barnard offered me his job I mean there were six surgeons there so I would have been the junior one but so I was very pleased because I didn't have a job to go back to in England and uh, I liked it in South Africa very much because of partly the nice place Cape Town is uh, but also because we were doing transplants we were doing a major open heart surgery that the only children's hospital in Africa was there at the time so we did pediatric stuff and we had a very good research lab so I stayed and I thought I would stay there forever after that but then he retired and uh, after he retired a few months he phoned me and he said how are things going and I said fine and he said uh, and I said what are you doing and he said um, well I'm I'm, in, uh, I'm helping somebody start a heart transplant program in Oklahoma City which was the last place I expected him to be. Maybe he said New York or Los Angeles, I thought so. So I, and then he said that they pay me a quarter of a million dollars for six months advice each year. And I laughed and said, well, can't you get me a job? And, <laughs> and never thought anything else about it until uh, another couple of months later, he phoned me again and he said, would you really like a job here? I said, I have not thought about it. He said, well, someone's going to phone you today and offer you a job to come run this transplant program here because they're having trouble with it. So I didn't really want to leave Cape Town, but I realized that the, the, the politics were changing a bit and I, the sanctions were on and we were getting less money for research and less money for um, tertiary health care. They were thinking of putting more money into primary health care, which was very sensible, less money to go to meetings abroad and so on. And I thought, well, I, I'm not sure what the future here holds. And I thought maybe I should take this opportunity. So that's how I came to the United States. And then I... Uh, I continued doing research, uh, but also helping to run this heart transplant program in Oklahoma City. And then after several years, about nine years, I was offered a position at uh, the Mass General Hospital, and they particularly wanted me for research. And by that stage, I'd been doing heart transplants for about 17 years, and I decided I'd give up the clinical side and stay in research, which was into xenotransplantation. And then after a few years there, I was offered a position in Pittsburgh and then just a couple of years ago in Birmingham, Alabama. So that's how I've moved around so much. Um, so uh, the last several years have been in full-time research. So that's my background, really. But I kept yeah. in touch with Chris Barnard until he sadly died. Um, I was on the phone to him every now and then and uh, saw him a few times when I went to South Africa and so on. So I got to know him fairly well. And, and how did you find him? I mean, I certainly... 
I've read your book and, and read your descriptions of him, and he's become um, he obviously was a very large public figure. But how did you find him personally? Well, I I met him, of course, towards the end of his career. I mean, I I moved there in 1980, and I was there till '87, and he was there the first about four years that I was there, um, and until he retired. And 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 so I think as a younger man, he'd been much more uh, self-centered. And everything was done to enhance him. So I think there was no doubt he was a self-centered person, but very driven and very motivated. And people were very loyal to him. Most people were very loyal to him, despite the fact that he treated them fairly badly at times, because I think they realized he was very uh, motivated to get things done. And there's no doubt he made a great success of it um, early on. He he developed one of the best heart surgery programs in the world. In fact, uh, he spoke at a few meetings and people just didn't believe the results. But mm. I'm assured that they were correct and so because they were so good. Um, and uh, by the time I was with him, he was sort of semi-retiring. He He still did operate a bit. He still came in for the meetings and so on and so on. But he was had a lot of other interests by then. So he was much more ready, I think, to delegate to other people, whereas before he'd always, it was either he did it himself and he has had his hands on everything that was going on or he would have to sort of leave completely. But by the time I got there, he, he was a bit more prepared to let other people do things and wasn't sort of hovering over them all the time. So I was there at a fortunate time for me because I'd, I was in, I was the sort of chief resident or senior registrar in Cambridge when we did the first transplants in Cambridge in 1979, just before I, I moved to Cape Town. And um, so I had a little bit of background in heart transplantation as well as the research I'd been doing. And so he gave me responsibility when I got there for the, the heart transplant program. Uh, so I looked after all the patients. I saw them as outpatients, et cetera, et cetera. And he would come and, you know, I'd tell him how things were going. And I I think that, I think I, you know, I did a reasonable job, I think. And I think he got uh, um, confidence in me. Um, now, earlier on in his career, I think he would have breathed, breathing down my neck much more. And uh, But he, he, he seemed to let me go on things. So <clears throat> I found him quite easy to get on with. But I know people who'd been there much longer than I had said when he was younger, he was very difficult to get on with. It sounds like a lot of that uh, was tied to his drive. He seemed like a very driven person. That certainly earlier. Certainly, in when career. he was younger, he was very driven. By the time I was there, he wasn't so driven. I mean, he he, he was enjoying all the other aspects of life that he'd been that opened up to him. Uh, and I think you have to put that in perspective with his childhood, where they were very poor, really, and his life was very restricted. Um, and they didn't really you know, have much opportunity. So when, when this all opened up to him after the first transplant, I think he was like a little boy in a candy shop. That It was right. suddenly all these people he was meeting and all this travel he was doing, first class and everything. And uh, I think it, moved, it, it uh, swayed his head a little bit because it was just so new and wonderful to him. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind, A, he was in, very intelligent. He had great judgment about things. His, his early results of heart chest were much better than anybody else's, including the Shumway group in San Francisco, who had most experience, by far most experience in the lab. So Barnard had the sort of skill to know 
when something was right and when it wasn't right. So he, he had a very good judgment. Um, and uh, again, very uh, the thing I stress, he had this courage to do things that others, for example, that first heart transplant, he could have, because of the law in South Africa, he, the law basically said you're dead when a doctor says you're dead. So he could have used brain death or whatever he wanted to do and say that the patient's dead. Um, and he'd taken legal advice about this, but he thought, well, maybe people will criticize him if he takes a heart that's actually beating. So in the operating room with the donor, they disconnected the ventilator. The patient was brain dead, but they disconnected the ventilator. And they waited for the heart to stop beating and for the EKG to sort of go flat, which took several minutes. And he must have known, and everybody around him must have known that that was damaging to the heart. But he still went ahead with the transplant, and luckily was successful. And I think that was partly because he used a very good way of storing the heart between the donor and the recipient. But it took a tremendous amount of uh, courage in those days to do your first heart transplant and allow the heart to stop beating. I mean, if... When I was doing transplants, we probably wouldn't have used that heart. We'd have been so worried if it had stopped beating. Now today, yeah. they are using they are using their methods of trying to resuscitate it better and so on. But it was a tremendously brave thing to do. I, I, I'm sure somebody wouldn't have done it. He was he was actually waiting for somebody, a patient to be dying, say on the operating table, and he want, was waiting for a donor to come available at that very time so that he could take the heart and he need to transplant it. And Barnard thought, well, that's never going to happen, basically. So you have to do it as an elective procedure, not as an emergency. Uh, um, and so there, there were aspects there that he was he had good judgment and he was very brave, very, um, uh, very courageous in what he was doing. One of his former mentors, uh, Walt Lillyhigh in Minneapolis, who trained both him and Shumway, he said to me, he don't. He didn't think that Shumway would have had that courage to do that. Now it may be. Uh, it's just an opinion, and and I mean I would be the first to say that Shumway was the main um, father of transplantation. He'd done most of the research work, which showed it was going to be feasible and so on. But I think Barnett had that courage that not many surgeons would have had. He was also a very charismatic person. He had a great sense of humour. Um, he was very always interesting to talk to. Um, so uh, captivating sort of person, I think, and uh, he gave me fantastic opportunities that I pro- I didn't get in Britain, and so I was you know I'm very uh, very grateful to him, and uh, I found him the I say in the book I found him the most interesting person I've ever met, um, <laughs> which is which is pretty good because I met a lot of people, so uh, I think he's underestimated worldwide by the medical profession, mainly because of his private life once he did the transplants. But I think he, his contributions to the field of heart surgery and then transplantation are very, very significant. And I think people play them down now because of his private life. And uh, I think that's a mistake. I think you've got to say okay, his private life, he went off the rails a bit. But on the other hand, what he did professionally was very, very good. And what and I, I you brought up a lot of interesting points there, but one of the things that I think I took from your book too is how surprised the world was that this first transplant happened in a you know it was sort of considered a backwater, an unknown group out of South Africa rather than someone like Shumway um, in the U.S. or, or other centers. And what do you think drove him to to be first? Like you imply in the book that 
that wasn't really what was driving him to necessarily be the first to do it. He never made a thing of saying he wanted to be the first, but I think at the back of his mind, he probably was motivated because it hadn't been done before. Uh, I don't think it was a competition between him and Sharma or anybody else, but I think he was very keen to do it because he wanted to see what happened. I don't think he thought it was going to hit the headlines as it did. I have, I'm quite sure about that. He he told people he thought it would make a little ripple in the medical field, but he didn't think much else. And I think he was actually stunned that it captured the public's imagination as it did. I think the reason why everybody was surprised, even in the medical field, was because they were either unaware of the work he was doing in Cape Town or they didn't rate it. Um, because there's no doubt before he did it, he was very well recognized as a, a cardiac surgeon with excellent results. For example, Fallow's Tetralogy, um, uh, which uh, when I was training in cardiac surgery, even in the 70s, we had a very high mortality, uh, really. And I think he did 100 cases in the early 60s, early mid-60s without a single death. Uh, yeah. Total Correction of Fallows and Trello, which was remarkable. And he presented it in London at a meeting, and I know people there just didn't believe the data, but uh, I'm sure the data were absolutely correct. So I think he, people underestimated him and, and what he was doing as, as a cardiac surgeon before he did the transplant. They really faced up to the fact that he was running a very, very good program with excellent results. They perhaps wouldn't have been surprised, so surprised. But I also think yes, because uh, you know South Africa was not generally uh, on, on the on the medical map for advances, but uh, there were a lot of very good physicians and surgeons in in South Africa at that time. Uh, a lot of them from the British schools who'd gone out there as professors and so on. They were excellent people. So I think people underestimated it really, and I think they underestimated him uh, that he was so. You know, they probably think he's got plenty of other things to do. Why would he want to do heart transplant? Um, and he hadn't published much on it at all, if anything. He'd done a few in dogs to get the, the surgical technique right. He'd been over to Virginia to work with David Hume, the kidney transplant surgeon, to see how did you manage immunosuppressive therapy in kidney transplant patients. And while he was there, Richard Lower, who trained with, uh, with uh, Shumway, he was with Hume at the time, and I know he did some work in Hume's lab doing some more heart transplants in dogs. So he had plenty of surgical uh, experience, and he had developed this experience of managing kidney transplant patients with immunosuppressive therapy. And then when he went back to South Africa, he did one kidney transplant. She did very well, lived for many, many years, and then he felt he had enough experience to do a heart transplant. Um, so, but he, he he was the sort of person who would push to do things like that. Many people would wait till everything's right and everything's ready or somebody else has done it and so on. But he had that aggressive attitude to research. Uh, the thing I always remember, we were working on a machine that preserved hearts, a perfusion apparatus, and we actually used it in baboons uh, and we preserved the heart for two days and then put it back in the same baboon. Uh, the baboon right. had a heart transplant in the meantime. And when we went to him and said, look, we've got this machine uh, working well, and he said, uh, he listened to us, and then he said, okay, well, we'll use it in the next patient. The next time we get a donor, we'll use it. And that'll be. And I remember saying to him, well, wait a minute, we've only done it you know, six or eight times or something. And he said, well, does it work or doesn't it work? And I said, yes, it's worked. <laughs> so he said, well, we'll use it as a patient. You know, so 
he had that ability to make a decision and say, all right, the evidence is we, we tried in the patient. Now, a lot of other surgeons would have stayed in the lab for the next 20 years. He, he you know, had the courage to say, let's, let's try it. And we did try it in, in, in about half a dozen patients when I was there. Uh, and it worked fine. Um, so um, uh, so he, he, he was one of these people that was, uh, you know, had the courage and the drive to, to do something if he thought it was going to work. Well, I guess that explains so, the title of the book, The Surgeon Who Dared. Yes, I think so. When I was writing it, um, it, that struck me as the most important thing about him, I think, that he did have a lot of sort of courage to do these things. And, and I definitely uh, felt that from reading the book as well. One one interesting, another interesting part of this, as you mentioned as well, this sudden uh, celebrity that he was kind of thrown into unexpectedly, uh, obviously drastically changed the course of his life. But it, I don't know if it's he was the first, but he certainly seems like one of the earliest of these kind of celebrity physicians and surgeons that we see nowadays. And even some of the more strange things that he kind of got into later reminded me of kind of the Dr. Oz and those kind of people in the world, like near the end of his career. Do you think that that tainted his legacy when he got into things like those anti-aging creams and things near the end? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I don't think he was the first. For example, Alex Carell, the scientist, oh, yeah. the surgical scientist, he became quite a well-known public figure and celebrity. And he got into a lot of trouble because he was very pro-Nazi, really, in the, in the Second World War. Right. Uh, and then uh, Blaylock um, uh, at uh, Johns Hopkins, who did the first um, blue baby operation with the Blaylock shunt, he right. became quite well-known, I think, uh, publicly as well as in the medical profession. But he wasn't sort of uh, seduced by this publicity and this uh, celebrity status, whereas Barnard clearly was. Yeah. Um, so I think Barnard, yes, grasped it because it was wonderful for him. He was a bit extrovert. He, he, uh, he had great personality. He got on well. And he had met all these wonderful people. And so I think he definitely, um, you know, took advantage of the situation and enjoyed the situation much that's, more than anybody else. Well, he certainly, yeah, he certainly led an interesting life. That's that's for sure. Do you do you think now he did not win a Nobel Prize? And I don't know if he was ever put up for consideration. I know in your book you mentioned that, uh, or, or at least I've read elsewhere, uh, that it suggested that because of the you know issues around apartheid, him being a white South African might have had some influence on him not winning. What do you think about that? No, I don't think he deserved the Nobel Prize because he really didn't contribute anything very new. He didn't come up with an you know, immunosuppressive regimen that was new or immunosuppressive drug. He just carried out the surgery, which had already been developed by Shumway and others. So I don't think he deserved the Nobel Prize. And I'm not right. sure he was actually put up for it. Probably somebody put him up for it. But um, I don't think it would have been the right decision to make. Um, so I, 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 I don't think I would say he should have had that. I don't think apartheid perhaps played much role in it, although it might have done. The politics play a role in some of these things. Um, so it might have done. Um, uh, and in fact, I suppose if he'd been a, a black South African, uh, that might have been, you know, the, the political pull might have been more to give him a prize or something. But uh, I, I don't think he, de he deserved the, the prize. The prize is for more fundamental, uh, basic contributions, I think, rather than what he did. I'm not saying that what he did was not uh, wonderful, um, but for example, Roy Kahn in Cambridge, who was the first person really to come up with proper chemical immunosuppressive drugs, 
and Tom Stasel, who came up with some drugs and modified the drugs, and both of them contributed enormously to development of both kidney and uh, liver transplants. They, I think, should have won a Nobel Prize, but neither of them did, uh, and I think that was a mistake. But that, that to, to, to be able to say, okay, here's some immunosuppressive regimen that's never been used before. It's a new approach to transplantation. Um, that is the sort of thing I think that should have got a Nobel Prize, whereas Barla didn't contribute anything new like that, really. Right. Now, you're, I guess you're referring to the cyclosporin and tacrolimus, which are the... Well, even before that, because um, uh, Roy Kahn developed azathioprine, which was the earliest oh, one okay. which they used. He, he studied it when he was at, both in Britain, and then he went to work with uh, Joseph Murray in, in Boston and, and introduced it there in dogs. And then they followed up with using it in patients. But he really established uh, that was the first immunosuppressive drug. What Stasel did was to combine it with steroids, high-dose steroids, and the results were much better. And then cyclosporin was also really developed by uh, Roy Kahn. He didn't discover it, but he certainly developed it and, and made it. Made it. It wouldn't have been developed without him. In fact, the, the drug company was not interested in. Um, and then um, uh, Stasel combined that with steroids. And then ten years later, he was given the first slot of tacrolimus, which was uh, obviously even better. And so. The two of them contributed so much to immunosuppressive therapy and also to the development of liver transplantation, which was much more difficult, I think, than heart transplantation. But I kind I, of I understand why they were not given uh, a Nobel Prize or shared a Nobel Prize. Yes. Well, and, and one thing I, I really enjoyed about your book as well is it's not just about Dr. Bernard, but rather uh, the whole history of the development of, of cardiac surgery and transplant surgery. And at one point, you were talking um, or writing about the University of Minnesota in the 1950s, Lillehei, and uh, a number of other uh, surgeons that worked there, and you described as one of the most important in the history of medicine. Can you expand on that a little? Yes, I don't know if you had a chance to look at that other book I wrote called Open Heart, which was about the development of heart surgery as opposed to just transplantation. And I covered that right. pretty thoroughly in, in that. There was a sort of... Um, the professor there um, was um, expected everybody to do research. He was very keen on research. Almost it didn't matter what you were doing as long as you were doing some research. And he had a, a, a bunch of very innovative young men there, like Lily Hyde. Um, and they all came up with this idea of trying to do heart surgery, heart surgery one way or the other. There was a guy that developed hypothermia. Um, and uh, then uh, Lily Hyde did the cross-circulation where he had a the father or mother on the table as a as the cardiac only bypass machine for the infants they connect up, which again was very risky, a potential 200% mortality, and um, again something that you know Lilihai again was very courageous in the things he tried to do, and then he developed a very inexpensive um, heart lung machine, much 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 cheaper and easier to run than the one that had been developed by Gibbon in Philadelphia. So um, uh, it was a, a time, a, a hotbed of, of activity and innovation in Minnesota at the time. And um, it must have been, in fact, Barnard trained there during that time. They did the first, I think, cross-circulation experiment in, in patients in 1954. 
and they just developed this cheap heart lung machine by 1955 or so. And he was there from 56 to 58. So he was there right at the almost at the beginning when they were still learning all these things. And he said to me that that was the most exciting and interesting time of his life. Not the, first, not the transplant or after the transplant, but that time in Minnesota where he said everything was new and everything was happening. So, um, uh, you know, I think it was a very, in some way was also there at the same time, training and, and several other well-known surgeons were there at that time. And I think that was a very exciting period because they, we're starting a completely new field of surgery, a very constructive field, whereas most surgery is destructive, you just take something that's diseased out. And here they were, you know, correcting defects and so on and so on with a completely new approach with this machine. Again, I, I can't understand why nobody in that field got a Nobel Prize. I mean, Gibbon developed the first machine that actually worked, and then Lilleheim was really the first who dealt with all of these um, correcting all these defects and developed a much cheaper machine, etc. I think the two of them certainly should have got a Nobel Prize for that. And then John Kirkin came along and took the Gibbon machine and made it much more functional and was was really at the Mayo Clinic and uh, developed things, you know, much further. Um, so I think, you know, nobody would have argued if the three of them had won a Nobel Prize. But again, they they don't tend to choose clinicians as often as they choose basic scientists and so I think that was another big mistake because if you look at the impact that heart surgery has had on patient care I mean now millions of patients have benefited from it and it all started at that early 1950s period. Yeah it's a certainly sounds it's a fascinating period I'll have to read your book next read Open Heart that sounds really really good. People, people there said to me you know if you did it in the lab today you're doing a patient next week. Now, that was probably a bit of an exaggeration, but there was no doubt that you could get from the lab to the patient very quickly then compared to today. There were no IRBs or anybody right. else who just, if, if your chairman said, yeah, fine, go ahead, you went ahead with it. And so uh, there was huge innovation. There was another guy there at the same time who was using dog or monkey lungs as the sort of, uh, um, as the uh, oxygenator. Now, I don't think it was very successful, but he did several patients and again, you would never be able to do that today. Now, it's probably a good thing because it wasn't very successful, but people were willing and able to try completely new approaches um, uh, and go from the lab to the patient very quickly. Yeah, and in fact, that um, brings me to another point that, that you mentioned, something that probably a lot of people don't know, but uh, Christian Bernard, is, some of his work on, on doing uh, piggyback heart operations or uh, heterotopic uh, transplants where you're adding a heart uh, yes. to assist the native heart. Um, and, and there was certainly some experiments with animal hearts using uh, in that situation, correct? Yes. Uh, he, he, he um, I mean, uh, there had been a Russian surgeon who'd done some similar work in, in dogs, but not right. in patients. Uh, but Barnard decided after the first few heart transplants, about the first 10, he realized that there were problems either getting the heart to work, uh, you know, if it had been ischemic. And his 10th patient, I think it was, they couldn't get the heart to work. And it made a big impact on him, partly because the, the guy was his son's tennis coach and almost like a father figure to him. Mm. And when he came out and told the son the heart didn't work and the patient was dead, the, the son said to him, well, couldn't you put his whole, whole heart back in? Because at least that was keeping him alive. 
And Barnard thought, well, maybe that's not a bad idea. So he thought if we leave in the old heart, at least we've got some backup. And also because in those days, rejection was a major problem. Uh, if, if, you, if your heart was failing because of rejection, you had your old heart, which could also help out while you were trying to correct the rejection. That happened several times. Um, and so that's why he developed the heterotopic heart transplant in the lab. And when I was there, we used that for the first few years I was there until cyclosporin came in. And then you didn't get so much rejection, so, on, so we went back to orthotopic. But his results were very good with that, actually better than most other people's results with orthotopic at that time. And I think it was a very sensible thing to do. Yeah. Um, and I don't think he gets enough credit for that because we don't use it now much at all. But uh, it was for that period of time, I think it was a good step forward, and um, it was it was it was a, a, a good innovation. So yeah, he was very innovative, and um, and, uh, and and I think he's underestimated. Uh, and again, that's partly because of his uh, private life afterwards and going into that face cream. That that was really foolish. I think he thought he'd make a lot of money out of it. And uh, that attracted him, but I, he, he, I know he regrets that because he told me several times that it was the biggest mistake he made, and right. it, it, it affected his reputation. Certainly. Now, um, one other thing I, I wanted to ask about because you, you are you yourself are currently working in xenotransplantation. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yes. And and it's certainly in those early days, you you uh, told some some stories about using um, baboon and. Um, I think some other people in the U.S. even tried a pig and a sheep, et cetera, as transplanting. And obviously those those failed fairly quickly because of acute rejection. But I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on, on uh, xenotransplantation, where it stands now and where you think it'll go in the future. Well, I started working on it when I was in Cape Town, actually, partly because we could get baboons at the time for a search for experimental work. They cost us $25. They cost me nearly 10000 now here. <laughs> So we, it was very cheap to us to get it, but they used to catch the baboons on the farms where they would be eating the crops, and instead of shooting them, they would bring them in, and, and we were able to buy them for $25. So when I realized it was so easy to, to, to get a primate uh, uh, model, uh, I first started doing transplants because of the donor shortage, which I realized very quickly was the biggest problem in, in, mm-hmm. in transplantation, even in those days. Um, I started doing transplants between monkeys and baboons, uh, closely related. And they did fairly well with the present immunosuppression. But then I realized that that wasn't to solve the problem because it, it was there were reasons why we wouldn't want to use baboons and chimpanzees were out of the question. So I did do a chimpanzee heart and a baboon heart as a heterotopic one, hoping that the patient's own heart would recover then he right. could take out the, the, the heterotopic chimpanzee or baboon heart, but in either case, did it, uh, it was it successful. But that was a sensible approach because you weren't committing a patient to have a chimpanzee heart or a baboon heart for the rest of their lives. Or he might have been able to get a human heart during that period of time, but I say neither was it successful. But then I realized after two or three years that this was not going to be the answer to the, the human problem, so thought that pigs would be the answer. Now, pig hearts or pig kidneys are rejected very rapidly within minutes um, if you put them into a baboon or into a human that has been done, as you mentioned. Um, but with, with the and the big advance came though, when we were able to genetically engineer pigs, because you can then knock out the antigens against which we have antibodies. Right. So you can knock those out of the pig. So the pig now kidney or heart does not express 
There are three known antigens, and we have tweaks now that don't express any of them. So the amount of antibody that binds to those organs is minimal or none. Um, and in addition, we can put in human genes which are protective. For example, human complement-regulated proteins that protect us from our own complement. So when we activate complement against say, infectious microorganisms, we don't destroy our own cells. Right. Uh, the pig has pig complement regulators, but they're not really effective against human complements. So if you put the pig organ in, it will be damaged by the human complement. But we now have pigs with uh, human complement regulated proteins in the pig. Similarly, we have human coagulation regulated proteins in the pig. We have human anti-inflammatory uh, proteins in the pig. So we now have pigs. Uh, I work with a small company that makes these pigs for us. Uh, we have pigs now with nine genetic manipulations, the so three knockouts and six protective ones. And in the lab, in vitro, we can't find any antibody binding or any cytotoxicity to those, um, to those pig cells. There's, there's no killing of those cells in the lab. And we're just beginning to do some studies in, in baboons. Uh, we're actually been doing the first one on April the 1st. I am very optimistic that those pigs will be the answer. Um, and we're actually already planning a clinical trial. And I think within two years, we should certainly have enough data from the baboon experiments and have sorted out all the other things about a clinical trial. We should, we should be able to go ahead. We've, we've decided to use kidneys first because uh, the waiting list for kidney transplants is so long. And there are patients, for example, if you're 55 or 60, you may wait uh, seven or eight years to get a, a, a donor organ, particularly if you're blood group B or even O. And a lot of those patients are dead in that time because the mortality on, 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 on um, chronic dialysis is much higher than I anticipated. And so we think it may be quite ethical to offer those patients a pig kidney either as a bridge, uh, so, so they're not on dialysis for a year or two, which would while they're on the waiting list, or as a permanent thing, we don't know yet how long they would survive in in a, in a human. But we 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 are committed to think that that would be an approach that would be quite ethical, and that would get us into the clinic. And I think eventually, I think uh, the the impact on medicine will be enormous. Um, and we're not only thinking of organs. We've had um, monkeys, diabetic monkeys completely cured of diabetes by putting in pig eyelids for uh, wow. for more than a year. And I also believe that all red blood cell transfusions will eventually be pig cells uh, because you don't have to worry about infection and test, you don't have to test the blood for any infectious or microbes and so on and, and, and so on. Um, we think that skin transplants will be from uh, genetically engineered pigs rather than just ordinary pigs, at least as a temporary phenomenon. And so on and so on. So I think the the potential is enormous, and I'm fully convinced that we will be there fairly soon because I think we've had better and better better picks now. Um, and um, as far as I can see, it's all going to work out very well. The immunosuppressive therapy we use is no, uh, it's slightly different, but it's no more intensive than we use for a patient with an allotransplant. So you're not committing the patient to get infections or cancers or something, I don't think, any more than you are with it. And eventually, I believe that we'll be able to genetically engineer the pig so much that you will hardly need any immunosuppressive therapy for the recipient because the organ will be protecting itself. It's now protected completely from antibodies, 
And we, there are things we can do and have done to the teeth that will actually protect it from the ordinary T cell response. Um, we haven't got those in the, these particular peaks because we've concentrated our attention on the antibody problem, which is the major one. But I firmly believe that eventually we'll have peaks that uh, you can put the organ in and you probably won't need any immunosuppressive therapy because the peak will be protecting its own organ. So I think we potentially is enormous. There's a group in, in friends of mine in Italy who've done some very nice work on uh, putting in pig cells into monkeys with a Parkinson's disease-like condition, and they had about 50% of them lived a year, and, and their Parkinson was markedly better. So I think all those things will be uh, will be a potential um, uh, use of xenotransplantation. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about it, sooner than most people think. I think. Well, and, and it's uh, that's. I mean, it's certainly been. I remember hearing about this for for many years. Uh, this potential, but. Uh, that sounds like it's a lot closer, as you said, than, than most people would think. And considering, yeah. I mean, organ donations, limiting factor, and always has been and probably always would be, is the availability of of organs. Uh, certainly here in Canada, we hear about lots of people dying on waiting lists for organ transplantation. Oh, yeah. That would be yeah. an absolute there's, game changer, yeah. Yeah, there's 20 a day that die on the waiting list in the United States. 20 a yeah. day waiting patients waiting for a transplant once they already die. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's the biggest problem in transplantation now because the transplants generally do pretty well. Um, and um, but I think we're very very close to it now. And I think uh, um, most people, even in medicine, even in transplantation, don't realise how close we are getting to it. I think. Well, that it's the continuing history of, of medicine and surgery. I think that would be uh, something that would be remembered as a major. Uh, a major impact and in, in change in, in, in so. how we do things. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's fascinating to hear. So. Dr. Cooper, I appreciate you speaking with me today. I, I didn't want to take up any more of your time, but I think we've uh, covered some fantastic topics and learned a bit more about Dr. Bernard. Right. Good. Well, good to talk to you. Yes, you too. Thanks very much. Okay. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we'll take on another listener suggestion. Now, this was a great idea, as I'd never heard of it, but the topic is a fascinating one. That is the use of thoracotomy, which is to cut open the chest or thorax, as a means of resuscitation in the era before CPR. Who knew? In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.